We started this talk by pointing out <clears throat> that for many people, um, even when there's um, a lot of interest, a lot of attraction to practicing this way and exploring this whole realm uh, and the possibilities of sensing the soul, imagining, perceiving, even when and even when one has been practicing that uh, way in those ways for a while, there can still be a kind of um, force or pull uh, of the sort of culturally dominant view that is entrenched in uh, many respects, in, in some way or another, entrenched in our psyche and exerting its influence, its uh, kind of um, stern judgment on uh, what we might be thinking or how we might be practicing, sometimes in very quiet and, and subtle ways. And so that um, it may be for many people that the uh, practices of sensing the soul and that whole orientation opening need some um, support uh, in terms of uh, an intellectual exploration or exploration of ideas and concepts um, uh, that might be inhibiting it, preventing it, um, judging it, dismissing it, uh, and uh, being aware of those, looking at them, questioning them, and seeing are there, are there other possible ideas that can give give this opening and this kind of opening of direction, uh, a legitimacy, um, a support, a grounding, and uh, so that we can feel um, space uh, in which to explore. That can we um, pry open the space by considering the influence of ideas and questioning those ideas and finding ideas that will open up the space, that will provide a ground, a legitimization, um, etc. for sensing the soul and all the possibilities that that brings. And we were uh, saying that as, as part of that, we are heirs to a, um, a complex and confusing um, uh, legacy of ideas coming to us through the culture, through history, and as I said, it's kind of um, forming something of a, a sort of bedrock in, in the psyche for us. So, um, in recognizing what's recognizing that fact, recognizing and um, being aware of what exactly are those ideas, where do they come from, uh, what influence do they have, in beginning, as I said, to question them, to poke a little at that bedrock and the, the rocks that make up that bedrock, um, so that they are, that, that, uh, Imprisonment is not happening automatically and unconsciously, so those ideas don't just automatically, unconsciously, um, or without our consciousness, imprison us. Um, and perhaps we can then, if you like, turn the soil, to use a different metaphor of the ground, 
made up of these clumps of ideas and rocks and soil. And perhaps in looking at it and working that soil, we can turn it and it becomes a different ground. A ground that the soil now turned actually supports um, a fertility, their fecundity of this, uh, of imagining, perceiving and sensing the soul. It might be, <coughs> at some point, for some of you, that this very uh, questioning and consideration of ideas and um, and playing in the realm of ideas um, as they relate to or uh, uh, inhibit or support or open um, this whole uh, opening of practice that we're talking about. Um, it may be that that kind of play and engagement is itself actually soul-making or becomes at some point soul-making. And also one sense of being at a certain place in a certain culture uh, with certain needs and certain perspectives and certain dominant trends, etc. And that, so one's whole participation in the culture and the kind of uh, evolution or contest or conversation of worldviews within a culture as it moves forward in time, um, that that whole vision and sense of one's own engagement with um, different ideas, um, it, it becomes soul-making. So that's a possibility too. And so in the uh, first part of the talk yesterday, we, we looked at some of the threads that we can identify um, within a uh, the legacy from from basically from the scientific revolution and the sort of classical scientific worldview kind of overstepping its boundary into scientism and the uh, overstepping of the um, epistemological view there and the what we call, what William James called the vicious abstractionism and, and several other other aspects and how that actually comes into our life and um, gives rise to doubt or inhibition or hesitation um, or downright forbids certain um, orientations in practice, certain directions, certain uh, 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 disvalues, certain devalues, certain perceptions, experiences, openings, etc. And aspects of our being. Um, and so Alongside the scientific, or as well as the scientific, we can consider um, a little bit about the Western philosophical legacy, um, again, that we inherit, which is a complex and, and rich um, kind of interweaving of different philosophical traditions as well, alongside the scientific and in, in dialogue, in fact, with, with, with science. And what I'd also like to try to weave in and include for our consideration in all this uh, are some of the some of the attempts um, within Western philosophy uh, to open up and question the established and taken for granted epistemologies, ontologies, and worldviews, uh, etc., that were kind of. Uh, established and then became entrenched with the Western Enlightenment um, and kind of shaped what, what some would call kind of modernist, uh, the modernist worldview. And uh, so there were these attempts uh, to 
open open those ideas up, open those worldviews up, question them, um, question again, challenge the uh, kind of um, almost utter domination of scientific thinking. Um, but look also, as we look, as I mentioned some of these and draw attention to them, uh, look also at how they often fall short um, of what we might uh, need and and be helped by in in opening up and grounding our work and how some of those attempts in Western philosophy are actually uh, fall short because they're they're still I don't know what to say infected somehow or or still uh, influenced uh, oftentimes unwittingly um, by uh, some of the limited thinking that they sought to break free of. So hopefully we can look at some of that and weave that in and consider where they might be um, expanded or added to or themselves challenged and opened up in different ways. And um, where I'd like to pick that long story up um, is actually in the early 20th century. And um, there was uh, this evolution of science that I talked about. And um, there was the First World War and the Second World War, and a lot, obviously, concern about um, values and morals and where on earth is humanity going. Um, And several people pointed out the kind of divorce or disconnection between um, scientific exploration on the one hand and just the whole kind of human context that it happens in um, on the other hand and the um, consideration of values, um, moral values and other values. So um, science uh, tells us nothing about value, Uh, certainly not moral values. Um, So... uh, Husserl, uh, German philosopher Husserl, Edmund Husserl, um, uh, wrote a book actually called The Crisis of European Sciences and Transcendental Phenomenology um, and other pieces. And he was living in Germany after the Nazis rose to power, seized power, actually were elected. Um, um, And that was part of his concern, but uh, uh, was... uh, pointing to science and, um, in his words, um, the positivistic reduction of the idea of science to mere factual science. Positivistic means basically the idea that if you can't, if it's not material and you can't measure it, it's nonsense, um, in a nutshell. And so that idea of positivism um, really started to take over um, in certain philosophical uh, lineages and more more widely in sociology and um, uh, as as a kind of life view as well. And Husserl points out that that um, positivistic reduction of the idea of science to mere factual science um, m- means that, uh, as I said, science has has nothing to do with human values, um, or or this question of what human freedom is, etc. Um, 
it then, ex I'm quoting now, it excludes in principle precisely the questions which man, which humanity, let's say, uh, excludes in principle science and this kind of scientific investigation when it's then transferred to other realms like sociology and philosophy and human sciences, excludes in principle precisely the questions which humanity, given over in our unhappy times to the most portentous upheavals, is writing at the time, as I said, the, the Nazis had come into power in, in Germany. Can we not say something similar in our time? Um, excludes in principle precisely the questions which humanity, given over in our unhappy times, the most portentous upheavals, finds the most burning. The questions which humanity finds the most burning. Questions of the meaning or meaninglessness of the whole of this human existence. So that was part of his concern. Um, this this kind of way of thinking that had forgotten about the human, con or devalued the human context as something material and measurable, um, akin to science, was using the classical methodology of classical science to um, the human sciences, the study of humanity, and then had nothing to say about value and and uh, human life, very, very little. So one, one of the things Husserl did was um, to respond by focusing on what he called the life world, uh, life hyphen world. And, and he said, this is... Um, I'm actually paraphrasing now from a book that some of you, um, uh, if you're kind of a, a little bit interested in these ideas but don't want to go whole hog into sort of reading volumes, there's, there's a really, I think, really nice sort of introduction to a lot of these philosophical ideas in a book by a guy called David West, and it's called Continental Philosophy. And I, I think it's really good. It's not too long, and we can sort of dip in and out of it. And... Um, it, 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 if you're if you get kind of the um, the bug with, with with these kind of ideas and, and as I said earlier, um, it might be an interesting book for some of you. Um, so I'm I'm uh, paraphrasing a little bit what he said here in that book, and so Husserl responds to this kind of crisis um, partly. Um, with this idea of the life world, and, and he wants to explore the life world. And what's the life world? Well, it's basically l our sense of life as we live it. And also, um, that that's uh, a kind of context, this life world, like the ordinary presumption of, I exist, and you exist separate from me, and I'm in my house right now, or whatever, and the table's in front of me, and uh, just the conventional kind of view of the world that this is the context and the sort of basic presupposition of all thought and action. So it's almost like giving a context to science and philosophy and, and understanding them as practices um, which take place in the life world and which are given, given uh, a certain power through the life world, through our culture, through the s social networks, but also through this just... Um, uh, what Husserl called an unquestioned ground of presuppositions. This is really important. Unquestioned ground of presuppositions. A background of unreflective assumptions, values, and practices. So there's a lot kind of going on there. Assumptions, values, and practices which make up the life world. Uh, and so, uh, in all uh, 
scientific inquiry, philosophical inquiry, etc., um, Husserl says um, that everyday surrounding world of life is presupposed as existing. The surrounding world in which all of us, even I who am now philosophizing, consciously have our existence. Here also, the sciences as cultural facts in this world with their scientists and theories. Uh, in this world, we are objects among objects in the sense of the life world, namely as being here and there in the plain certainty of experience before anything that is established scientifically, whether in physiology, psychology, or sociology. On the other hand, we are subjects for this world, namely as the ego subjects experiencing it, contemplating it, valuing it, related to it purposefully. There's a lot in that. It's quite a dense quote. But um, one piece there I'd like to uh, highlight is uh, the emphasis on the life world and, the, and then the phil- his philo- philosophy then um, emphasized or limited itself to the investigation of the appearances of the life world. So there was again this kind of, let's stay with appearances. The appearances, what the appearances of life as we experience it, everyday life that we take for granted, containing all these unreflective presuppositions, assumptions, etc. And uh, it wasn't a new word, but or a new kind of philosophical direction. Um, but but in a way, he he kind of um, gave birth to or started uh, the phenomenological movement. Although Hegel and Kant had used this word before, but um, uh, the phenomenology as the study of uh, the the limiting of philosophical investigation to the appearances uh, that are part of our everyday life, inner and outer. And so this phenomenological movement was born in philosophy, staying with the appearances of the life world. Um, Now, you can hear, if not the language, at least some of the tenor of that, you can hear uh, that in a lot of our current explorations of um, uh, Buddhist practice or insight meditation or mindfulness, people will use slightly different um, kind of emphases there. But there is also in that this kind of dharma, there's the the emphasis on um, attention to an investigation of the appearances of everyday life, the experiences, appearances of our lives. And so, it, it you know, can we bring attention to that with mindfulness? Um, can we bring a bare attention to that? So these are um, common kind of tropes in the in the sort of contemporary Western, not just Western, but contemporary Dharma sort of uh, um, teaching. Um, But again here, even though um, science started with let's give attention to the appearances, again, in both the presuppositions that exist there and also the um, the kind of um, ways those practices develop to bring new 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 appearances as I'm investigating appearances it, um, it moves out of the life world 
In other words, we start with appearances, but either we're approaching with certain uh, a certain network of ideas that become, as I said, concepts that influence the way of looking, and and thus what is experiences. I'll come back to shortly. Or we're just saying, give give a really close bare attention to my experience of the world and my inner experience right now, the life world, if we call it that, give a really close mindfulness to that. And what happens is the attention kind of um, starts to deconstruct one's everyday life world experience. And then, uh, again, as I mentioned before, there's a kind of um, reductionist paradigm, or deconstructionist and then reductionist paradigm operating. Ah, you see, when I look closely, this is what I find. That must be reality. These um, uh, atomic units of perception, sensation, vedana, consciousness, um, etc. And um, so sometimes this kind of um, what we might call a phenomenological intention, actually, uh, in in mindfulness and in bare attention, it's actually actually again pushes, uh, opens up the sense of the range of what the life world is, and then sometimes declares what it experiences through a certain lens as a kind of reality. <clears throat> but let's stay with the with the Western philosophy. Uh, a little bit. We'll come back to Dharma shortly. So, um, a philosophy called uh, Italian philosopher called Gianni, Gianni Vattimo um, points out, and, and uh, what I really want to hi- highlight here. So, Husserl, with with his idea, let's just bring it back to this basic, um, uh, basic sense of existence and the basic experience we have of life, world, inner, outer. Um, and all that that we take for granted in there, uh, wrapped up in that experience. Um, but, so, it's a, you know, really good idea. Um, problems with it, though, quite a few problems with it. One is, um, as I'm quoting Gianni Vattimo now, um, there is no, and then he puts it in inverted commas, phenomenological analysis of experience. So this is what Husserl wants to do. Um, a phenomenological analysis and, and description and investigation of experience. But Vatima points out, he's a much more recent philosopher, there is no phenomenological analysis of experience. And, and then he writes, the inverted commas cannot be invoided here. So he's put phenomenological um, in inverted commas. Um, there is no phenomenological analysis of experiences that is not conditioned, that is, made possible and qualified by the fact of belonging to a tradition. In other words, um, everything that Husserl kind of wanted to see as a kind of universal of human existence, how uh, everyone in his society at his time, basically, in a certain tradition, sensed existence. How different it would be if we talked about a phenomenological investigation of, say, um, a tribe in Papua New Guinea or, or the Amazon or, or somewhere or other that had 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 not had any contact with, with Westerners. Uh, and they, their experience, their um, phenomenal, uh, phenomena means uh, appearance in Greek, by the way. So the investigation, the logos um, of, of, of phenomena, of appearance. Um, but their world, their life world, would have been completely different. 
Savatthama is pointing out, it's always belonging to a tradition. It's not like there is an experience, and then after that we add all kinds of in- intellectual abstractions to it. And Vatima goes on to write, um, is this not, this, this uh, uh, fact of belonging to a tradition and um, that uh, colouring, shaping, limiting, uh, etc., our phenomenological, that actually being part of the fabrication of our uh, life world, but also of our phenomenological analysis of that life world. Um, but is this not a situation familiar to hermeneutics, familiar to this whole um, branch of philosophy that deals with the interpretation of texts and of existence? That one who is dominated by prejudices cannot recognize and thematize them as such. Something Nietzsche pointed out um, even before Husserl uh, was writing. Um, so the life world is something that is a life world for a certain history and then the analysis of that life world or for a certain historical cultural context and then the analysis of that life world is also an analysis dependent on a historical cultural tradition philosophical tradition context etc so so one of the things Husserl was famous for uh, saying or writing was, was uh, to the things themselves. In other words, let's put aside metaphysics, let's put aside this um, kind of positivism of science and actually to the things that present themselves to us. When we consider the historical, cultural um, context and what we bring to that investigation, also to our experience itself, that, that um, his sort of rallying cry for phenomenology to the things themselves, it seems kind of naive once we've seen the dependence of any um, perceptions of things on the way of looking in the moment, which I'll come back to, and on the concepts entertained within the way of looking um, at any point, which I've mentioned and I'll come back to. But those concepts, the concepts that operate in us, will include scientific and other ideas for us now different than they would for, say, someone living um, exactly in the spot where I am now in England, say, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, before in medieval times, before the scientific revolution. The very way we um, perceive the things, the things themselves, so-called, um, would not be coloured by the, the, um, the uh, implicitly, kind of, almost tacitly coloured, infected, shaped, um, and limited by a scientific worldview that we've all been educated in, and other ideas. So actually, it becomes, <coughs> excuse me, hard to separate um, phenomenology um, from science, or rather, it becomes hard to separate um, uh, a phenomenological investigation from uh, it's infected with ideas from science. So, more generally, we see that a person's experience of phenomena is, is, is hugely conditioned, shaped, determined, allowed or not, this or that sense of things, this or that experience, by the current worldview, the Weltanschauung, in the culture in which, in which they live. But actually, e- even that is not quite, it's a little too simple, because um, it was... Uh, 
Heidegger, or some interpretations of Heidegger, have him kind of stressing what he what's called a kind of historical thrownness into a zeitgeist. In other words, we're just we. I am born at a certain time in a certain place in history. I'm thrown into a kind of cultural worldview, um, and that's part of uh, the problem with uh, that needs to be realised, and this changes over time. But even that um, is not universal. In other words, not everyone thrown into, let's say, like I was born in England in the 60s and then living through that and maybe living some time in the States and coming back and um, is going to have the same worldview or even the same um, set of influxes, strands of influxes. The, the histo- history now, the, the strands in history are, 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 are broad. So it's not universal. Even the, his, the, his, uh, you know, the influences operating for someone in a certain a location in time and space, thrown into a certain, by their birth, into a certain location in time and space. So, for Westerners living today, there is no longer, um, for most Westerners living today, there's no longer just one common worldview or way of experiencing the life world. So, this historical thrownness, or what's called the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, is not an objective fact, a reality, um, what some philosophers like to call a facticity, something you can't, it's just there, and you can't do anything about it. There's lots of different influxes um, of ideas, and we, we uh, are... Sh- it varies from individual to individual, and subculture to subculture, which are the dominant ones, how they are valued, etc. And e- even the whole movement of history, you know, the victor uh, of a, a war, even if it's only a cultural war, uh, the victors write the histories. Some of you might know Howard Zinn's book, uh, A People's History of the United States. There's a history of the United States, not that, not that they get taught in, in high school, etc., History from the perspective of, say, Native Americans or African American slaves, etc. Who writes the history books? Um, so there are many histories and many influxes of ideas given uh, different weights and different influences um, in, uh, in shaping, limiting, fabricating the worldview and then the analysis in uh, uh, what we might call attempted phenomenological analysis of that worldview. All this needs to be taken into account. So, sometimes with insight meditation, um, we uh, might be tempted to assume that employing an attention or a mindfulness, um, or that we are employing in insight meditation and, and through mindfulness, a kind of attention um, uh, that reveals what things are, the way things are. And if we employ an attention that reveals, um, and I'll put that in inverted commas, reveals an atomistic world of sensation and uh, a kind of atomistic world of experience, um, we might be tempted to think, oh, that's a phenomenological approach. 
because I'm just looking at my experience, uh, looking at the appearances as I take them for granted, and looking carefully and investigating them carefully, and I think, oh, I don't have any presuppositions, and then what I see, um, it reveals perhaps, depending on how you're applying mindfulness, and that's the key point, um, it reveals, say, an atomistic view, and I think, oh, so this is the phenomenological approach. When I um, employ the phenomenological approach, this is what I see. And then I'm corroborated by certain texts. I say, yes, there are just, uh, the self is the five aggregates, there is just this, um, etc. Or atoms of Vedana and sensation, moment of consciousness, etc. Um, so there's that approach in philosophy, and there's sometimes that approach within the Dharma, and we think, oh, that's phenom- kind of something like the phenomenological approach. Um, there was another German philosopher, uh, Wilhelm Dilthey, and um, in some ways we could say he could be uh, regarded even more than Husserl as the kind of grandfather of the phenomenological movement in the 20th century. And he really didn't like this kind of reductionism um, in in psychology or philosophy. And so he was kind of scornful and... um, and pointed out that we we live and move not, I'm quoting now, we live and move not in a sphere of sensations, but of objects presenting themselves to us. Not in a sphere of feelings, sensations and feelings are inverted commas here, but of value, meaning, and so on. In other words, you, we can deconstruct appearances, but in deconstructing we also miss something. We, it's like looking, uh, what's the phrase, not seeing the forest for the trees. Um, neither perspective to me. So we've got on one side this kind of reductionist sensation, uh, re- reducing down to atom- atomized moments of sensation and consciousness and Vedana and whatever. Uh, and another view that's more like... Y- y- you, that's not that's not uh, actual experience. Actual experience involves objects, values, uh, meanings, etc. So, uh, to me, though, neither perspective realizes fully enough the dependence of experiences on ways of looking. Nor just uh, it doesn't it doesn't realize also how broad and kind of diverse is the range of ways of looking. Um, and therefore of experiences. So, um, in other words, when I look a certain way, I get this experience. And it might be a atomistic uh, a sense of appearances, appearances of the atoms. When I look that way, I get a very different experiences of objects and values and meanings, etc., etc. And way broader than all that. So insisting that one or the other is the real way we experience things just misses the whole dependence on ways of looking. Conceiving of phenomenology as a kind of investigation and an uncovering of the universal human experience of a life world or the life world, there's there's lots of problems with that. What 
I would like to stress and open is a conception of what I call the phenomenological approach, just as far as we're concerned, um, what I have been calling the phenomenological approach in, in previous talks in the last few years, um, uh, as an investigation of how experience of the life world, or how appearances, um, uh, vary. So, one is, uh, they vary uh, in a historically contingent way, as uh, Heidegger emphasized, and also depending on mood, uh, or we could say mind state in Dharma language, but far more widely than any of that, um, uh, and, and subtly, and the gradations are extremely subtle, depending on what, what I've been calling the way of looking in the moment. In the moment. So there's another philosopher, Richard Palmer, who writes a, who wrote a book on um, hermeneutics in philosophy. And he writes about Willem Diltai's thought. Um, uh, experience is precisely the reality of what is there for me before experience becomes objective and therefore admits of a separation from the subjective. Um, so Palmer is emphasizing this, uh, that idea of Diltai, that um, uh, his fruitful insight, again I'm quoting, is in seeing experience as a realm before subject and object. Um, so this is quite a uh, common theme or emphasis um, or stance of some phenomenologists saying, actually, experience is, is, when we really look at our experience, there is no subject and object. That comes later. That's some kind of intellectual superposition, superimposition there. Um, when you investigate experience, experience is just before subject and object division. division. Uh, continuing uh, Palmer writing about Diltai and Diltai's fruitful insight lay in seeing experience as a realm before subject and object, subject and object, a realm in which the world and our experience of it are given together. He saw with clarity the poverty of the subject-object model of human encounter with the world. I, I personally have problems with this, and if you've done enough. Um, practice in, in some of the ways that I've suggested, you, you, you would have problems with it as well. You should have problems with it as well. Because the sense of subject-object split that I or you experience, um, the sense of them being split, there is a subject and there is an object. They are somehow loosely connected, but they're really split. Or them as being kind of poles of a polarity, or the dissolution of that polarity in some kind of oneness or unity or whatever varies in experience dependent on the way of looking. The very sense and experience of subject and object and their relationship or what they are uh, in relationship to each other varies dependent on the way of looking. So... Um, there is a poverty, as, as Palmer points out, to the subject-object model of human encounter with the world. But it's not because the reality of, of our basic experience is devoid of the subject-object split. 
a model in, that insists that experience is always pre-reflectively devoid of, or uh, pre-reflective experience is always devoid of, um, or before subject and object, is equally poor. This is how it is, and then we add something. The idea of subject and object based on all kinds of intellectual ideas or whatever. That's equally poor. So to insist on the reality of subject-object split, either um, implicitly or explicitly, is as poor um, as as a model um, as it is to insist that always um, there is no subject-object split. It's only added to or split later by the intellect or whatever. The sense of subject and object um, and, and I mean the pre-reflective, I'm not talking about in, intellect, the sense of it depends um, uh, on the way of looking in the moment for its um, in, intensity, its vividness, and the degree of its separation. So just where, how much of a duality of polarity or oneness or um, total alienation or whatever uh, between subject and object depends on the way of looking in the moment. Depends, and, and a, a meditator will see that very, very clearly. What's more, um, the uh, the state or the the perception of the subject-object polarity in our experience um, is affected by the very investigation of it. So in investigating, in giving it careful attention, um, uh, in, in paying attention to it with curiosity, let's see, where's that subject-object split now? As I pay attention to it, that paying attention to it um, is itself a way of looking, and it, and it changes. The, the attentive curiosity to the, the state of the subject object so the state of the subject-object sort of nexus or um, uh, gestalt or whatever we're going to call it, that paying attention to it curiously affects the state of it and effect, therefore the perception of it. Just like, um, uh, as Heisenberg pointed out, uh, with, with um, the observation of matter. Heisenberg's un- uncertainty principle and what's fundamental uh, sort of tenet of quantum uh, mechanics, dependent on the way of looking. Even just trying to, um, being interested in the subject, obvious, but try it. What's uh, common to a lot of these endeavors is just, I think, maybe just a human tendency, maybe it's part of what the Buddha called basic avijja, um, this this kind of need or want to say um, this is how it is. This is how it is. So Diltai says this about subject-object and someone else says that, or, or whatever, uh, if that's what we're talking about. This is how it is. And this is how it is means this is how it is. Again, independent of the way of looking. So um, Historical um, c- context is 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 a conditioning factor. 
in, in what appears to us in our sense of the appearance of the life world that historical context is not even a, uh, a, a, a universal for anyone alive today uh, for, for everyone alive today um, and even more than all that um, dependence on ways of looking dependence on ways of looking ways of looking can be um, deliberate, consciously um, played with, manipulated um, experimented with but they operate anyway there's always a way of looking when there's any experience when there's any appearance when there's any life world at all when there's any perception there's a way of looking and that way of looking includes um, concepts even if they're not, we're not conscious of them at the time what they are they're implicit, they're tacit they're very very subtle so I mean, I've gone on and on and on about about that, so you, you know that by now. But in in uh, what I call for our work, um, when I refer to the phenomenological approach, it's really the investigation of how do um, different ways of looking affect or fabricate appearances differently? How does the world, inner and outer, how does experience, appearance, perception, um, get constructed, built, experienced differently, dependent on the way of looking in the moment. What's involved in that? What's the possibility there? Is there some stance that is not, or some perception, some appearance, that we can then say it's not dependent on the way of looking? Find out. But the phenomenological approach, when I borrow that word from philosophy, I really mean that. The investigation of how different ways of looking fabricate differently. So in that con- in that context, um, bare attention or mindfulness, um, these are ways of looking. They're not revealing uh, a, a reality, any kind of objective reality. They're ways of looking. And what we see with any kind of mindfulness, bare attention or this or that, um, is 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 what we then experience, sense through that particular lens at that time, and involved in that are concepts, and involved in that is metaphysics. Uh, I really want to insist on this. So, what do I mean by metaphysics? Actually, it's a big, problematic and contentious word, metaphysics. Um, I'm going to say, and I, I've said I think a little before, but I'm going to say that it includes um, ont- ontological um, uh, beliefs and assumptions, epistemological beliefs and assumptions. In other words, beliefs and assumptions about what's real and about how we know or what constitutes valid uh, and uh, uh, knowledge, knowledge to be respected concerning what is real or not real, etc. And also a whole cosmology. What is the nature of this world, etc., and of a human being? Um, so metaphysics um, is really um, any time there's any belief, assumption, um, I would say conscious or unconscious, implicit or explicit, around ontology, epistemology, cosmology. And these are not just abstract. Um, they're commitments we have. So they shape what we value, how we practice, what we um, intend, how we invest our energy, what we devote ourselves to, but also how we move in the world. 
and how we talk to each other, all, they involve um, on ontological and epistemological cosmological commitments, beliefs and assumptions, wrapped up in perception, any and all perception. That's one aspect of metaphysics. I mean, all that is quite broad uh, sweep there. But also metaphysics has come to be very contentious as the kind of um, speculation about anything that's behind appearances. So if you talk about gods or souls or any kind of mysterious energy or something like that, um, this, is, this is regarded and dismissed because it's metaphysics. And modern people are not interested in metaphysics uh, so that sort of um, thrust uh, goes. But as we pointed out when we talked about science, um, even uh, fundamental particles are, are uh, uh, something behind appearances. They're not immediately discernible to, uh, to the senses. And they're not even discernible with, with high-powered. Um, uh, you know, an electron microscope still can't see an electron or let alone a quark or whatever. Um, so, or um, assuming that there is a reality behind our everyday appearances of this, the, 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 the atomistic reality or atoms of matter or atoms of sensation and consciousness, etc., assuming that's the reality behind appearances, that's too also a metaphysics. Um, and as I said, even physical laws are something, so to speak, behind appearances. Um, it can be extremely abstract. Um, we might say, ah, oh, yeah, but scientific laws are at least amenable to empirical checking through experiment and whatever, and we can um, uh, kind of hone in on the truth there. Um, not so simple, you know, that distinction. Spiritual laws, if we can even use such a term. Psychological laws are also soul laws, if we can um, uh, use, use those kind of uh, ideas, are also um, kind of testable and predict can predict what, what happens. But anyway, there's metaphysics, ontology, epistemology, cosmology, um, there's metaphysics as um, the postulation of what is behind appearances as a reality. And then there's also very, and I want to draw this out, it's kind of wrapped up in those other two definitions or, or aspects of metaphysics. But there's also um, what I would call the metaphysics of objectivity. And that is um, the assumption of a singular objective reality that it's possible for us to know. This is how things are. Um, so that metaphysics of objectivity, it's all over the place. All over the place. Even when people say, I don't uh, believe in truth, or the Buddha wasn't interested in truth, or this or that, it's hiding in uh, in in one's approach to uh, in, in 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 often in people's approach to existence, etc. There's a metaphysics of objectivity, an assumption of a singular objective reality uh, that's possible um, for us to know, um, and that actually is an uh, ontological, epistemological um, belief, assumption, and or commitment, as I said in the first aspect.
But the, these metaphysical concepts and ideas are wrapped up in perception. They walk around with us and they uh, shape things for us. So, you know, sometimes it's possible to just get rid of metaphysics, dispense with it, put it aside, cut it out. Uh, and that's kind of, uh, you know, often often the sort of rallying cry of people who have a kind of a more, some people who have more of an existentialist bent. But, you know, I'd say we can truly avoid or dispense with metaphysics about as successfully or to the extent that we can um, truly avoid or dispense with experiences in the six sense spheres. In other words, where there is sensing, where there is sensation, there is metaphysics. There is ontological um, beliefs, assumptions about what's real, about what experiences we can trust, about what constitutes knowing something, all of this and more. And also the sense of something being, so to speak, behind, that we don't have direct experience of, but we can um, trust and it's part of reality. So, people say, I'll cut out the metaphysics, throw it away, etc. Great. You can do that about as easily as you can get rid of all of your sense experiences in the five sense spheres and the mind of thought and imagining. So it's, we can't, I think it's, uh, we can't, it's important to point out, you can't just pretend that we don't have ontological, epistemological, cosmological commitments. Meaning that's actually where we, where we, as I said, we invest our energy, our time, our dedication, uh, etc. And also what we trust, what we rely on, and what we value. One of the even more interesting things about all this is that um, epistemology, I said, is the is the kind of ideas about or beliefs about or exploration about what knowledge can we trust concerning, let's say, what is real. Uh, but um, when you really probe and ask questions epistemologically, you will, you will inevitably come to some kind of uh, some kind of answer that you realize it rests on some kind of other assumption and and that assumption, whatever it is, is actually ultimately unprovable. In other words, you're going to come, if you really pray, well, how do I, okay, I think this is real, how do I know? Well, because I value this kind of way of uh, gaining knowledge and that kind of way of gaining knowledge. I don't value that one and that one. And so why do you value that? And then you keep asking, why, why, why? You'll come down to some kind of, uh, some kind of assumption that you then can't prove. Okay, and this is, this is a really important thing to acknowledge. Um, so as I said, a lot of this ontology epistemology op- operates um, wordlessly and unconsciously uh, as logoi in in the um, in the uh, perceiving consciousness, so to speak. Any moment of mindfulness has some metaphysics with it, and you can see again if you've done 
if you've done a lot of like more intense mindfulness practice, um, you will see how, for instance, the sense of materiality varies. Once there's a lot of um, momentum to the mindfulness and close mindfulness, the solidity of things, uh, of materiality, actually starts to uh, unsolidify. And um, so the, the separation between mind and matter begins to, uh, the subject-object split between mind and matter also begins to kind of loosen or melt a little bit. Um, depending on how much and what kind of mindfulness one is impl- applying. And then if that, if that melts a little bit, this dichotomy between mind and matter and also between subject and object, if that melts just a little bit, that polarity eases the, the sort of um, the, the, the split between the two poles of mind and matter or subject and object um, kind of eases, melts a little bit t- together. Then at that point, the mindfulness has different um, uh, ont- ontology and epistemology, etc. If, if one's really going with it and into it, than it did when it started. But even with the, just the, mi- the instructions of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta, um, the uh, kind of experience that opens up um, in different uh, applying different of the mindfulness instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta will also bring with it or carries with it and then unfolds different ontologies, epistemologies, etc. So mindfulness is actually um, it's not one way of looking, it's many ways of looking. You know, imagining your corpse um, Disintegrating, falling apart in a charnel ground is one of the is one of the instructions in in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the Sutta of Mindfulness, the discourse of Buddha's discourse of mindfulness. Um, the that's a certain way of looking. The um, experience of sitting um, in a very calm state and contemplating the mind states, or contemplating the feeding and starving presence and absence of. Um, the seven factors of awakening or something. This is a very different way of looking. Uh, And then, so any moment of mindfulness carries with it a certain um, set of metaphysical um, uh, assumptions, uh, certain metaphysics, and um, our lives are um, lived and experienced with or um, from, if you like, um, whatever is our habitual set of uh, hab- habitual set of metaphysical ideas, beliefs, concepts. Heidegger wrote um, metaphysics is not something which can be put aside like an opinion nor can it be left behind us like a doctrine in which we no longer believe. So this whole idea of putting aside metaphysics, cutting it out, just not engaging in it, uh, when you actually understand what's involved there, you realize, actually, we can't do that. We carry it with us. And what we can do is explore different metaphysics or see what metaphysical concepts, um, uh, uh, how they affect, how, what, what different metaphysical concepts uh, have, to, 
how they have different effects on our experience. <clears throat> so there was this phenomenological current um, in Western philosophy from a whole other direction. Um, there's what's called, um, it's not such a big deal, but a whole other different direct direction in, in, in philosophy. That then we have someone like um, Richard Rorty, um, who died not too long ago, an American philosopher. And he was uh, quite influential for some people. And um, he wrote, he's talking about two other philosophers now, Wilfred Sellers and uh, W. V. O. Quine. And they, um, they're what's called like um, analytical philosophers. So they're very, um, it's a very different kind of philo- philosophy than what we just talked about with those uh, Russell and Diltian people like that, Diltai, and people like that. Um, and so this kind of analysis of um, human thought, analysis of theory, analysis of what are the elements of reality and how we can form scientific opinions about things, so that kind of philosophy. And Rorty um, investigated all this and kind of came in that tradition, um, for the most part at least. And then he said, I interpret um, sellers attack on givenness. So this Wilfred Sellers had talked about, you know, we have this idea of what what is given to us by experience, like a basic kind of, this is the basic basic givenness. Life gives us this or that, this or that appearance, and then we do X or Y with it. But there's a basic givenness. Um, Wilfred Sellers actually just kind of demolished that idea. Um, and then Quine um, uh, again, an analytical philosopher and famous for uh, uh, concluding after his investigations, all so-called raw data are already theory-laden. So similar to Wilfred Sellers' attack on givenness, and similar you'll hear to what we've been harping on and on about, about emptiness and ways of looking. All so-called raw data. Think, let's just get to the basic, the basic fact, and not add anything more to that. Um, a very uh, attractive idea to many people, but after all his um, very scrupulous, logical, and philosophical investigations, Quine just concluded all so-called raw data are already theory-laden. It's just what I've been saying. We're already bringing concept in the ways that we look at experience. There is no raw data that we can have. There is no givenness. Um... <clears throat> So, Rorty is saying, I interpret Seller's attack on givenness and Quine's attack on um, necessity as the crucial steps in undermining the possibility of a theory of knowledge. In other words, epistemology. Um, The holism and pragmatism common to both philosophers and which they share with others um, are the lines of thought that when extended in a certain way let us see truth as in William James's phrase, what is better for us to believe rather than as the accurate representation of reality? What is better for us to believe? And that's a very dharmic, uh, at least as I would present the emptiness teachings. Um, what is better for us to, uh, or how is it better for us to look? That's slightly different. What, what is better for us to believe rather than as, quote, the accurate representation of reality, which is usually how we think about um, truth or 
it's possible to look in meditation in a certain way and see this is how it is. This is the accurate representation, either because I'm super equanimous and very calm, unruffled, um, unemotional or mindful or whatever it is. And then he says, or to put the point less provocatively, I think this is more provocative, but anyway, um, they show us that the notion of accurate representation is simply an automatic or empty complement which we pay to those beliefs which are successful in helping us do what we want to do. In other words, um, there's uh, we kind of... Uh, call real just what we want to... Uh, it, it's convenient to call something real depending on what we want to do with um, a certain point of view or a certain assumption about reality. Um, so it's a little unclear from that quote there what he means by what we want to do. He might mean whether we want to kind of apply technology or whether we want to um, build up a relationship with someone or whatever it is. Um, but there's a quote from Nietzsche which I actually can't find, and again Nietzsche so much at the, the this kind of forerunner with so so uh, so much thinking, um, so much philosophy. But but he said something like, um, you know, people select their philosophy about reality, etc., based on um, I'm paraphrasing now in our language, based on um, what their what kind of freedom their soul wants. In other words, um, if they want to uh, set something free in themselves that they really care about, set their soul free in relation to that, then they adopt a philosophy and therefore a, a, a whole worldview and sense of existence and real and unreal and all that, dependent on just what the soul wants. What do we want to do? So when 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 uh, we're practicing mindfulness, mindfulness is also wanting something. Mindfulness wants something. It's set in and it's determined by a context of desiring um, that is shaped by the Four Noble Truths. What do I want when I'm mindful? I want liberation. I want ease of dukkha. I want to move towards the Third Noble Truth. What's that? Well, well, I have to understand the first noble truth. Mindfulness is also set in the context of um, the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path, all of that. And a certain understanding of what gives rise to Dukkha in the second noble truth. So it's set in, in a conceptual context, but it's also wanting something. There's a desire there. What we want to do, says Rorty. What do we want to do? What do we want to do? So letting that question actually shape our ideas of what truth is and, and reality, what we say, what we uh, might l loosely now term truth or reality, depend on what we want to do. What do we want to do? I mean, collectively, this is interesting because it's like our collective global crises now and the crisis of the species and the earth and the climate, etc. Do we want to? What do we want to do? We want to solve those crises, I hope. If we want to solve the crises by um, purely technological thought, technological thinking, technological perceptions, it's purely an issue about... Um, uh, 
about uh, carbon dioxide uh, levels, and if we can get some technology to kind of remove the carbon dioxide, great, really important. Is that the limit of what we want to do? Solve our crises by those kinds of um, ways of looking, those kinds of um, value systems, ontologies, all that. Nature as machine and commodity might have been part of how we got into this mess in the first place. What do we want to do? And in caring for people, what does that mean to care for people? What do we want to do? What is a human being? What is a person? So my care, are we caring by giving so much attention to the GDP and, and kind of uh, relentlessly being entrenched in, in the view of growth economics? What do we want to do and how, what's the relationship between what we want to do and our views of what's real and what is the case, what a human being is, what nature is, what the world is? And what do we want to do um, together as a society? And what do we want to do as individuals? Because individuals, individuals, we have very different um, uh, directions of our of our desire, of our longing, of our aspirations. One of Rorty's, uh, Richard Rorty's main concerns was actually social, and. Uh, was famous for saying something, I can't remember the exact quote, but his basic intention, or the point of all his philosophy, was just to keep the conversation going. In other words, he didn't, he wanted this, this idea of non-truth to uh, his statement about why it was important, was so that we can keep talking to each other, so that there is this kind of um, uh, conversation that's possible to, to onger between different points of view, etc., I mean, I'm, I don't know all his writings, but I, I read some. I, it, what seems strange to me is is that he kept saying this thing about the basic point of all this is to keep the conversation going, to keep the conversation going. There's a social concern there. But I'm not aware of him actually engaging in much conversation about different points of view in a way that was um, really um, productive or changed anyone's mind or brought anyone into at least being able to experience someone else's um, worldview and what opened from that. Is is the conversation ongoing? I'm, I'm not sure in, in our wider culture. Um, did he take part in that? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and, and if so, how much power and significance? Because if it's just an <coughs> intellectual conversation, <coughs> it actually, excuse me, doesn't enable one, as I said, to act to, to really open up the, the sense of existence and, and the worldview. Uh, the, the, it's, it's the, the playing with ways of looking, the flexibility with ways of looking, that's what I call meditation, and that actually allows an altering of, of view, meaning experience, meaning appearance. This um, this idea uh, that that Rorty actually at least said that, that he, he was uh, felt was important to keep the conversation going. It, it 
as a as a model of that or an example of that kind of social opening up and social cohesion and uh, openness of conversation and openness of the the uh, kind of relationship with truth as a model um, uh, there is uh, the uh, midrashic tradition in 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 uh, the Jewish tradition, um, midrash is a kind of commentary or interpretation of um, of uh, the whole set of, of sacred um, scriptures. So now I'm paraphrasing another philosopher called um, Gerald Bruns, uh, who who writes about hermeneutics, but um, in this chapter he's writing about the, the, the midrash. So, and he's talking about people go to study and in in uh, in the Beit Midrash in the house where 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 this kind of uh, hermeneutics of the bible is studied and there's this um, fierce debates going on um, but uh, fierce as they are and kind of to- uh, you know polarized as they are in terms of the difference of, of opinions um, they're actually they don't split the uh, the community, so it's there's polarly opposite opinions of, on the interpretation of this passage or that passage. This rabbi says this, and the other rabbi says completely opposite. And a student, um, he says, "How can I? How am I supposed to study in such an environment? What is this? It's chaos. This chaos of opinions and contradictory viewpoints. One guy says this, the other guy says the opposite. A third guy says a third thing. What what am I supposed to do with that? And um, the idea is that is exactly the perfect environment for um, studying, relating to, opening up and being opened up by the sacred text. Um, so, uh, and I would like to, as I said right at the beginning of this talk, to remind uh, us that hermeneutics means the interpretation not just of texts, but also of existence. So, Here's a social situation that took place, you know, that that was ongoing for hundreds and hundreds of years in um, in uh, in Judaism. I'm not sure if it's still going, but um, uh, of of kind of openness to different points of view. Multiple interpretations were viable. An infinity of interpretations was um, conceivable, and there was there was this great um, fecundity of um, different viewpoints, different chewings over, different reworkings, different connections made of um, r- regarding any passage from any sacred uh, uh, text, um, but then regarding the whole thing uh, also. So that um, in this social context, the, the those engaged in 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 relating to um, in this case the Torah or or uh, other other texts this way um, see that they uh, we see that they I'm quoting Bruns now we see that they imagine themselves as part of the whole participating in Torah Torah is the um, the Old Testament um, in Hebrew participating in Torah rather than operating or on it at an analytical distance, participating in it. So it's not something that I look at from a cold distance. I'm actually somehow part of it in my engagement with it, in this whole tussle and multiplicity of opinions and interpretations and slants and elaborations and connections. That actually is 
is part of it. I'm participating in it. We are participating in it. This conversation is participating in it. This social scene is part of it. Um, the uh, so part uh, participation uh, um, from that idea of participation, it follows that the words of interpretation cannot be isolated in any rigorously analytical way from the words of Torah itself. In other words, where does the Old Testament end and the interpretation of it begin? It's all, all of it is Torah. It's all this. It's all this whole, the subject and the object, the way of looking and what appears, the, the, the concept brought to bear and, and the uh, world that opens up there. It's all, um, it's all Torah. You cannot separate. You cannot separate the text. You cannot separate existence. If we, if we elaborate what's said here in terms of text, we elaborate that, extend it to include existence. You, you get this? Um, so, <coughs> um, again, Bruns. In other words, the Torah is constituted as an open canon. To be sure, the letters of the original scriptures are fixed, but they are not dead. So there's something alive here. Openness here has to be construed as the openness of what is written. That is, its applicability to the time of its interpretation its need for actualization. Um, so we'll, we'll uh, come back to that point shortly. Um, so you must now you must picture the text not as a formal object, so many fixed letters, but as an open canon again, whose boundaries are shaped and reshaped by the give and take of midrashic argument. So here's this whole um, community of um, passionate debate and creativity and probing and um, wider study and elaboration and contextualization. And that is something that shapes and shapes the boundaries um, of, of the, um, in this case, the scripture, the text. And we can also again say about existence. Um, so the those who uh, study in this way, with this passion and with this knowledge and with this elaboration, they make the text what it is, and they make it above all open. Uh, they open it to the present and the future. The Torah, the text, um, or existence, emerges as what it is and comes into its own only in the dialogue it generates. And only by entering into the dialogue can one enter the Torah, enter the text. Now, we, we, this is a social situation, I'll come back to it, but we can also just translate this to our own uh, individual, if, if it is, if we can even create an individual isolated. We're always um, influenced by ideas that we get from um, the past and our contemporaries as much as what emerges for ourselves, but there's this dialogue, this flexibility of interpretations, of elaborations, of contextualizations, and um, the multiplicity, multiplicity of interpretations there. Um, so, this would be an example uh, socially of the kind of thing that Rorty at least claimed that he was interested in. Um, but it's more than what Rorty was getting at. 
um, is, a, is a different notion. Because of this idea of participation, the, um, there those who study, who, who, uh, who passionately engage with, the, 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 in this case, the text, um, or reality, or uh, the sense of existence, or whatever it is, um, they're, part, they're participating. They see themselves as not separate. It's not something uh, that we have this kind of objective stance with in, in the kind of scientific epistemology. Participation, participating in the text and participating in the holiness. Yeah. So this whole view, very different than Rorty, it's a view um, of a social situation, of an on, of the conversation that keeps going, of an openness in regard to notions of truth, etc. But it preserves holiness. And I think in terms of Richard Rorty, and he's quite an influential and popular in some circles philosopher, I, I, I really get the sense reading him that he had a, 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 a hidden agenda and a hidden kind of dogmatism um, of physicalism. So often, kind of, despite all this talk about open truth, he often kind of um, lets slip um, statements or passages that just sound like his basic view is a view of atomic, uh, mat- meaningless movement of um, uh, meaningless material um, particles in a meaningless universe. And um, that that was a kind of um, bedrock that he couldn't shake, a hidden. Uh, dogmatism there for himself that also spread through his writings and a kind of hidden agenda that was, um, if you like, favouring that view, that metaphysics, that ontology and epistemology, etc., over um, and against uh, any kind of religious or spiritual view or, or something else. Um, but again, in co- so this midrashic uh, Example: this, this example of midrashic debate and, and the, the passion and the give and take and the complexity and the, uh, the, the, the variability and the wideness and the multiplicity of that um, was an example of something um, that was actually creative. Uh, I'm not sure if, it on, if it's still ongoing or if it sort of came to a halt at some point in uh, uh, perhaps a few hundred years ago, I'm not sure. Um, but... Uh, but it actually was a creative, ongoing debate that worked its way into people's psyches and then into into their actual views and how they lived their life. Um, uh, in in other words, it was a conversation, actual conversation that actually did affect uh, perception, sense of senses of existence, commitments, practices, uh, devotions, orientations, all of that. Um, let me quote from uh, 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 a rabbi called Rabbi Ephraim of Sudilkov um, because he points out also we're talking about um, so we're talking about hermeneutics now the interpretation of usually sacred text but as I said I want to expand that to um the interpretation of existence. Um, um, so the interpretation of texts, of teachings, but also of existence. And using this model of kind of what's uh, what's quite alive and insisted on in, um, in 
the Jewish tradition, this kind of multiplicity, etc., and this non-singleness and non-objective status of the truth. So the truth as something multiple, uh, amenable to multi-perspectives, infinitely variegated, infinitely mineable, infinitely fertile, and um, dependent on our participation, dependent on all kinds of things. So um, he writes this, Rabbi Ephraim writes, um, until they, and he means the people um, who are engaged wholeheartedly, passionately, um, with integrity, with commitment to this um, interpretation of uh, sacred text of Torah, until they had interpreted it, the Torah was not considered complete, but only half finished. Again, it's not a thing existing by itself. It depends on my participation. Same the point I'm trying to the wider point is same with existence, same with Dharma. Um, <clears throat> um, it it was until they had interpreted it, the sacred text was not considered complete, but only half finished. It was the rabbis through their interpretation who made the Torah whole. Um, and then then he continues to say he continues such is the case for each generation and its uh, leaders, or explorers in this case, they complete the Torah, they complete the text. The Torah is interpreted in each generation according to that generation's needs. Nowadays we say we have, the needs are diverse. That's part of what some people call the postmodern condition. We have different perspectives and different needs. But the, the point here is, again, this um, non-fixity of the truth, the amenability to different situations, which are also his, different interpretations, which are also historically contextualized. The Torah is interpreted in each generation according to that generation's needs, which we might add now today are multiple, varied, and according to the sole root of those who live at that time. That may be an idea we come back to. God thus enlightens the sages of the generation in the interpretation of his holy Torah. He who denies this is as one who denies the Torah itself. God forbid. Um, so it's a, it's a, you could read that as a kind of a, attempt at um, consolidating rabbinic authority, but actually it opened up. It was part of a movement that kept open and insisted on keeping open this multiplicity of interpretation and the and the um, uh, kept open the uh, not just the possibility but the the fact of it, uh, that interpretations evolving and changing over time dependent on the historic cultural context um, <clears throat> Isaiah Berlin some of you will Isaiah Berlin, some of you will have heard about him, another philosopher kind of person. And he wrote um, a fair amount on a guy called uh, Jean-Baptiste Vico, who was an Italian philosopher who lived um, in the 17th and 18th centuries. And Vico wrote about history, and he had quite different ideas, quite revolutionary ideas for his time on history and culture and worldview and all that. 
And so this is a passage from Isaiah, Isaiah Berlin, writing about Vico around um, around all this. Um, Vico's importance in the history of the Western Enlightenment consists in his insistence on the plurality of cultures and on the consequently fallacious character, the mistaken character, of the idea that there is one and only one structure of reality which the enlightened philosopher can see as it truly is and which he can, at least in principle, describe in logically perfect language. A vision that has obsessed all kinds of thinkers. Um, and then he names a bunch of philosophers. So there again, the singular objective, the notion of a singular objective reality that's universally true for all people, all times, all cultures, and all situations. And how endemic that assumption is, whether or not you're a philosopher or you consider yourself a philosopher or an intellectual or any, any of that, it creeps into our Dharma practice, it creeps into our everyday discourse, it creeps into all kinds of things. Uh, for Vico, uh, this is Berlin continuing, for Vico, men, are, men ask, humanity asks, different questions of the universe, and their answers are shaped accordingly. Such questions, and the symbols or acts that express them, alter or become obsolete in the course of cultural development, in the course of history. To understand the answers, one must understand the questions that preoccupy an age or a culture. They are not constant, nor necessarily more profound, because they resemble our own more than others that are less familiar to us. And then he bemoans the fact that Jean-Baptiste um, Vico was... Is was a philosopher that very few people actually bothered to read. Um, different questions. We're back to this question uh, I posed earlier. What do we want? Rorty, we were left hanging with, hanging with his quote, what we want. And Nietzsche's uh, uh, quote that I couldn't remember about, we actually um, have different questions that we bring and we want different answers or we choose different answers depending on what we want, depending on the worldview that we want to support because it supports something in our soul. Different questions. And, and, and those questions have to have to... In other words, when we talk about hermeneutics, when we talk about all this in relation to practice, um, that's why I emphasize the passion and the involvement um, of the midrashic context and that kind of heated debate and the um, endless sort of um, uh, creativity and um, uh, soulful um, investigation and probing and teasing out and elaboration on on text um, it it matters so f for all this what I'm saying to make sense um, it makes sense in the context of it being passionately important something in us is important to us if I mean pr it probably would not be the case but if someone was just listening to this and and they just weren't interested in um, opening up a sense of existence or what truth was or any of that. N none of this would, um, it would be completely ridiculous to be, to be hearing and just sound like a bunch of uh, a bunch of words that's kind of maybe perhaps mildly interesting or something. Mattering matters. 
When we talk about hermeneutics, when we talk about the sense of existence, what we're bringing to it, and how we can see or sense existence, and how we can legitimate this or that, it matters that it matters to us. So when we talk about um, the way we sense existence, and when we want to open up those possibilities, we're, talk, we're talking about something that some level of our soul, its passion is connected. And again, uh, Gerald Bruns points out that um, an interpretation, in, in, in whether it's of uh, sacred text or whatever, um, it has to matter. So you can't have a good interpretation by anyone of anything when that thing, text or um, sense of existence, doesn't really matter to them. Um, so this is quoting Gerald Bruns. Um, Say that interpretation, hermeneutics, is an act performed by a person to whom things matter, not by a consciousness primed to produce pictures of how things are in the world, or in the text, or in whatever state of affairs is put before it in analysis. It's different than the picture of cold scientific um, uh, um, epistemology that we talked about absence of emotion. The Torah, he continues, is a text that makes things matter. It preserves the smallest details of life from inconsequence and triviality. If you know the Torah, there's like hundreds of pages about every little minute detail of life and and, uh, and bringing all that into the realm of mattering passionately and bringing all that into the possibility of being made holy, being sacralized, being sanctified. Again, Brahms, mattering at all events is what the Midrashic text, um, I have been quoting, or he was, he was talking about a certain passage that was actually that student complaining about there were so many different opinions there and how can he how can he possibly study and understand what the Torah is when there's all these people with completely different opinions. Um, explaining in, in the house of study in the Beit Midrash there. Um, mattering at all events is what the Midrashic text I have been quoting from presupposes with respect to interpretation. Midrash is not a formal operation, but a form of life, life lived with a text that makes claims on people. A text that makes claims upon people turns them into respondents. They are answerable to the text in a way that is qualitatively different from the answerability of disengaged observers to the scenes they wish to depict. Now we could substitute the word existence for text and talk about um, what we are talking about now, this whole exploration of ontology, epistemology, conceptuality and opening up sensing the soul. So this whole um, probing of ideas and the possibilities in sensing the soul is not a formal operation, but a form of life lived with a, uh, an existence or perceptions of existence that make claims on people. That kind of sense of existence makes, uh, uh, turns, uh, that makes claims on people turns them into respondents. They are answerable. We are answerable to existence in a way that's different from someone who's just coldly, aloofly, analytically describing it. Um, so, we're talking, again, notice there, um, desire, eros, this longing to understand, this passion, 
connected with um, this, uh, connected with what I want to open up and how I perceive existence and what is legitimized or not, and what um, senses are um, valued or not. There's passion and there's desire and there's eros in that investigation, in that debate. Um, that we're talking about. There's emotion there. So desire, eros, and emotion are, because they're necessary for the kind of hermeneutics that we're talking about, and the kind of debate about hermeneutics that we're talking about, they are necessary, they are included in the epistemology. We're not talking about, um, now I'm in a neutral mind state, now I don't want anything, therefore I see clearly. Um, now um, there's the quietening of emotion and a calm, equanimous mindfulness. Therefore, uh, therefore I trust what I see. And nor the, the kind of scientific epistemology that I pointed out um, devalues or tries to put aside um, emotion or any kind of um, wish. It theoretically pushes that aside. It doesn't really. Um, desire, eros, emotion, necessary and included in the kind of um, epistemology that we're uh, involved with and trying to open up, and in the whole debate around that. So it needs to matter. You wouldn't be listening, I presume, at this point uh, um, if, if none of this mattered to you. It needs to matter, it needs to matter passionately. We need to be involved, engaged. Uh, our lives are on the line. Our sense of existence is on the line. It needs to matter for us, and it matters also in in what comes out of it. It matters because, as some uh, guy called Moscovici wrote and pointed out, questions of epistemology are also questions of social order. Questions of epistemology are also questions of social order. We might say pecking order. So I've talked in the past about epistemicide, epistemic cleansing, epistemic colonialism, etc. In other words, um, the dominant worldview of um, secular modernism um, taking over other cultures and disregarding, devaluing, dismissing, putting aside, sometimes even outlawing their uh, worldview, their ontology, their cosmology, their epistemology. Questions of epistemology are also questions of social order, the questions of hierarchy and pecking order within a culture. Whose voices get ridiculed, whose voices just become the entrenched, dominant, unquestioned, accepted view of what reality is, and therefore policy, uh, uh, political, economic, governmental, social, environmental policy is based on certain worldviews which are based on certain epistemologies. Certain cosmologies are based on certain epistemologies. So this needs to matter to us and it matters in the world. And then again, does the victor the cultural victor uh, or the epistemology that is a cultural victor become at some point a prisoner of that very epistemology of the very uh, uh, rigidified uh, rigidifications and entrenchments of whatever epistemology one is in as, as a victor then becomes the prisoner.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.